Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Welcome. Hi. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Hope What's going on, cobbers? Hope... <laughs> what? <laughs> what did you call them? Cobbers. Oh, cobbers. Yeah. I thought you called them coppers, and I was like, that's... Coppers. Strange. No, our random. listeners aren't no snarks. No narks. No snit no snitch snitches. Just stop. Get Welcome back to the show. Welcome to Best Serve Coal. We drink wine and talk about crime. Ironically, today we're not drinking wine because we have none. And neither of us could be bothered to go buy some. So it's a sober episode today. We also need to exercise at some point, so it's kinda like Yeah, we need to go to the gym idea. after this episode. Look, I am running a tight ship on schedule at the moment. I've just, I work full-time. I've just started uni full-time. I have this podcast. I have another podcast, which I'm starting with a friend. And we try and go to the gym. And we also have a graphic design business. So, you know, we got to, you got to milk the hours of the day. Mm, that's a very good way to put it. Milk all those hours out of the day. The days go so quickly. They really do. When you're successful. I just need like us. about three more hours in the day. But anyway, yeah. welcome to Best Served Cold, um, Egypt's 36th most preferred true crime podcast. And New Zealand's 134th eighth most preferred, preferred true, true crime. crime podcast. Humble brag. Yeah. We finally fucking made it. You Mum and Dad, <laughs> if you're listening, which I know you're not, we <laughs> made it. My mum listens. Mum, if you're listening to this <clears throat> On your specific request, we're both going to try and limit the amount of times we say the word fuck. Yeah. I can't promise... Just to reiterate, we're going to stop saying fuck as much. I can't promise it'll be gone entirely. In fact, I can promise it definitely won't be gone entirely. It'll be fucking hard. But <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> but we're going to try, mum. We're going to try for you. Yeah. We Give it a pre- red hot fucking go, Judy. Stop. That's the last one. You don't get any more. You've used your fuck quota. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You've used them all up. Yes, what's, ma'am. So, Tama, what's, how's your week been? What's been happening? Tell me everything. Yo, um, so I was watching um, recently the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, they have a Stan series actually on Hulu, but uh, we don't have Hulu in Australia, I don't think, so Stan acquired it. So I've been watching that. Um, that was really cool. And then just working, man. Just, you know, trying, we got, we got Twitter up and running. We finally got, um, our handle sorted cause we had a, we had a bit of an issue where we had a different handle for yeah. Twitter because someone had one that we wanted and it was we just kind now, of a shit however, show. We have continuity. You will find us at the BSC podcast everywhere. Yeah. Twitter, everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, <clears throat> the BSC podcast. It was really annoying me that we had different handles for different socials. Yeah, look, I that... made everything in a rush and I just tried to... I'm not blaming you or anything. Do I feel like you are definitely blaming me. Okay, well, I'm definitely <laughs> blaming you. As the one who set up the socials, I do feel a little bit of blame. Um, but we had a bit of a spike this week in subscribers. So if you're new to the show, welcome. Hey. Thank you for coming along. We shared an old episode we did in a bunch of like true crime Facebook groups because I wanted to get people's opinions. I shared the Elisa Lamb episode that we did, 
think it was the fourth episode because it's such an interesting case and I wanted to get other people's opinion and it kind of just like the post went off mm. and we saw this huge spike in listens for that old episode and a heap of new subscribers. So if you are new here and if you came from the Facebook group, welcome, welcome to the circus. Hope Egypt is nice this time of year. Yeah, and if you're listening from Egypt, thank you for making us your 36th most preferred true crime podcast. I didn't even know we had any listeners from Egypt. Mm, I didn't even know like podcasts, podcasts were a huge, uh, were, uh, were even a thing in Egypt. Yeah, so I wonder if it's in English or if it's like dub. I don't know how does no, it work. No, they wouldn't dub it. Uh, well, I don't know. See, the thing is that's interesting about other countries is, is that a lot of them learn English. Yeah, it's just us that are the dumb ones. Yeah, we're the dumb asses that just don't bother to learn anything else. English is kind of like the the standard for most things. Yeah, but I also <clears throat> listened to our fourth episode and realized how many times I say the word um. So oh, yeah. I'm going too. to try my best. I think I've gotten better in subsequent episodes, but... Uh, yeah, I think we've both gotten a bit better. I said the word um so many times, so yeah. I'm going to try and not say it nearly... It's like every sentence starts with the word um. Um, um, um. And once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. Yeah, it drives it, you insane. It's like, I won't say it because... Actually, no, I will say it. When you think about breathing and you start concentrating on it and you can't un concentrate on it and oh, why would you do that instead of breathing autonomously you now have to do it manually and that's what you're doing right now if you're listening to this podcast yeah but also i have a little bit of sniffly nose today it's not covid i just have a runny nose i don't think something... mucus is related to the is it not i, I don't, don't think so anyway. i don't really know the origins of mucus yeah, anyway okay. i don't think i have anything else to say so shall we just jump into it in the words of philip defranco let's jump into it imagine if you listened to our show that'd be great i would die um that'd be oh, sick. god damn it it's you know what it is it's when i think and i need to <laughs> instead oh, of instead of saying um i just need to think silently yeah so we're, we're gonna work on that okay so this week i am covering paul michael stefani or his moniker that he was given was the weepy-voiced killer. Oh, So central. he's actually one of, apart from Catherine Knight, we've mainly covered killers that had quite a high kill count, mm -hmm. theoretically. Yeah. This, he actually only has two murders and two assaults to his name. So he has a relatively low kill count, but he's just so odd. Like, and you'll see why when I get into it. <clears throat> so, Paul was born September 8th, 1944 in Minnesota with his mother, stepfather, and siblings. He was one of 10 children, so he had nine siblings. Jesus. That's a Minnesota thing, isn't it? Like, I think so. Huge like a numbers. Midwest thing? Yeah. I, I mean, Minnesota. I don't know. They, they just have lots of children and yeah. huddle like penguins to keep each other warm. That's <laughs> I assume that's what they do. They're penguins? That's what penguins do to stay warm. Oh, do they? Yeah, they that's huddle. Cute. Oh, okay. Didn't you know that? No, I didn't know that. No, yeah, penguins like huddle together to stay warm. There you go, Minnesota. That's why they have things. so many children in Minnesota. <laughs> I, I don't think that. I don't want to offend anyone in Minnesota. Yeah, sorry, Minnesotans. So yeah, he was one of ten <clears throat> penguin children in a very religious family. So when he was three, his mother remarried, and Stefani's claimed that his stepfather was occasionally 
abusive as many of these people are. For example, he quoted to a local newspaper that if the children got in his stepfather's way, his stepfather would smack them across the head and just send them flying. Just be like, get the fuck out. So, like, not off to a fantastic start. Not at all. So after graduating from high school, Stefani moves to Minneapolis where he floats around between different jobs, including one at the Malberg Manufacturing Company. This is sort of half important. So he was married for a short time. He had a daughter and he was divorced shortly after. And that's pretty much it. That's all you can kind of find on his backstory. Oh, wow. In terms of his history, he's a bit of a boring guy. The reason why he's so interesting and there's like re- like relatively high coverage considering he has a pretty boring backstory and not huge kill count. Yeah. You'll it'll come later. Okay. So December 1980, Karen Patak is walking home from a New Year's Eve party at around midnight. She was been hanging out with friends, having a great time. She's obviously been drinking because what person isn't at a New Year's Eve party? True. So she's wandering around the streets trying to find a way home and she's drunk. That night, she's bludgeoned with a tire iron. At around 3 a.m. in the morning, police receive a phone call from a man reporting that there's been an assault. The voice is overly emotional and almost hysterical, and it says there's a girl hurt here. He gives the paramedics the location right near the Malmberg Manufacturing Machine Shop. However, when the 911 operator asks for the person's name, he just hangs up. So police and paramedics attend the scene where they find Karen basically just hanging on for dear life. Oh, shit. She's naked in the snow. Her skull is so smashed in that her brain is exposed. She's rushed rushed to the hospital. What is it with me? She rushed the phone in. She rushed to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) She is rushed to the hospital. Nice. And she actually makes almost a full recovery. However, she has no memory of the assault and is still today recovering from brain trauma. So she did have like long onset sort of brain Your brain's exposed then for sure. In 1981, a group of teenagers are near a freeway construction site just walking through the woods, hanging out, because what else do you do in 1980? They find the body of a young woman. At roughly the same time this is happening... Although another source I read said that this happened 48 hours after the body was found, the police receive a phone call from someone hysterically screaming, God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. The woman found has suffered wounds to her chest, stomach, inner thighs, and the coroner later determines that she's been stabbed 61 times with an ice pick and then strangled with a shoelace. Now, I didn't know what an ice pick actually was because we don't have ice in Australia unless you, like, go to the snow. Well, it's not pretty, I can tell you that. So I looked it up. For anyone listening who doesn't know what an ice pick is, there's two different variations. One is basically, like, a wooden handle with literally, like, a foot-long spike on it. Mm -hmm. And the other one kind of looks like a tiny little axe for, like, tiny... Bits of wood. I think traditionally it's like a ice. screwdriver shape, but it's just the sharp. But it's sharp and pointy and, and long and doesn't look like something you want to be stabbed with. No, it's I terrifying. Mean, you don't want to be stabbed with anything, but like... If I was going to be stabbed, it would not be with an ice pick. That would, yeah. or, I mean, I mean, she took 60 and she's still alive. Well, I think that's probably... No, no, no. This person is, this person is she passed, dead. deceased. Uh, okay. 
I think probably the reason that you can stab so many times is because it's so thin and so like it's not serrated. Yeah, so it'll yeah. go in and out and not. It's very unless sharp. Unless you're actually puncturing. So she probably sadly bled out quite slowly, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, because I think the more jagged and the more blunt it is, the more yeah. damage it actually does tearing up the the tissue and the and the the body. Whereas if it's sharper, it's just going in and out perfectly. Yeah. So this woman is identified as 18-year-old Kimberly Compton, who'd recently graduated from high school and just moved to the area to search for a new job. Like, she'd literally just got off the bus that morning. Mm. At the crime scene, the investigators find nothing. There's no clues, no evidence, no DNA, nothing. So there's nothing for them to sort of get a lead on who has committed this crime. So the police initially write off the phone call that they get um, as a prank, but then they shortly realize once they ID the fact that it's been an ice pick that has been stabbing Kimberly, they obviously put together that only mm. the person who actually did it would know that it's an ice pick. So they try and trace the call, but it's too short for them to trace. And shortly after, they receive another call from a bus depot phone booth saying, Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry of what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I can't think of getting locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'll try not to kill anybody else. So they rush to the depot because they managed to track this call. They rush to the depot where the call has been made, but the call is long gone. They question witnesses, but no one really remembers anything that sticks out to them. So hoping to see if they can match the voice in these calls to the previous calls, they search through the backlogs of calls and this is where they make the connection between this murder and the assault of Karen back in December 1981 because the voice is so, like, um, it's it's so Distinct. standout. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually going to play Tama right. some of the audio and then he's going to do his editing magic Mad- and edit it Jeesh. back in because it's probably not going to sound great through a microphone. Yeah. All right. So I guess uh, we'll play the sound right now. Player emergency. Please don't talk to listen. I'm sorry. I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my face. Oh, my. I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself. I'm sick. Where are you? Yeah. Wow. So now you see why he's called the Weepy Voice Killer. I'm like the Wimpy Voice Killer, am I right? Hey, hey. <laughs> no, for real, that is... It's quite disturbing. disturbing to listen to, isn't it? Because you can... It, it doesn't sound like someone who's trying to throw like a red herring or act a certain way to to show off a certain demeanor. It sounds genuinely tormented. But it's at the same time, it's so self-centered. It is. Like it's saying, I'm so upset. Like, oh, really? Really? You're upset. You're up. I'm pretty sure the family of the girl that you stabbed 60 times with an ice pick is probably a bit more upset than you. But I think that's the thing he's saying is he knows that. And he, it's like the Ed Kemper thing. It's like he's doing it without necessarily knowing why. Yeah. And there's this whole theory behind, like a lot of these serial killers, um, some of them have this explanation that they go through a blackout period 
where yeah. it's like as if they're not even in, in control of their own bodies anymore. I just and- don't like the fact it's just all so... <clears throat> I'm so upset and I'm going to kill myself mm. and I this and I that. It's just all so self-centered. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing because it's very unique to mm-hmm. this man. It's it's not... We have never really seen something like that. We've seen letters to police yeah. and like cockiness and invasiveness. And, and this is exactly why, even though his story on its own... Like, obviously, all of these stories are terrible and sad and tragic because we're talking about people who've had their lives taken away. Mm. But in terms of, you know, the Bundys and the Kempers and the Geens of the world, he's relatively non-interesting in terms of his actual crimes. It's these 911 calls which makes it such an odd case that people are fascinated by. Yeah, and again, it's one of those... Sorry, didn't interrupt you, but it's one of those things that that, um, you hear the name, like Mm -hmm. the Wispy Boys Kill, and you hear it and you... when you think about it and you do this research, you go, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that. But it's not like a Ted Bundy, Ed Kemper thing where mm-hmm. it's so well known. Yeah. It's like you know the name, but you don't know what to associate it with. Yeah. So he actually also goes to call them again afterwards because obviously the media is covering this attack. And he actually calls the police to like correct some of the information that the media is putting out. Right. Basically... Again, so self-centered. Like, he's calling to just be like, oh, actually, if you're going to, like, talk about me, just, I just want to make yeah. sure that you're, like, covering it correctly. I like long walks on the beach. I'd also just like to add a little footnote to say that every single... I read a, from about nine different sources, and I swear to God, everything I read has a slightly different timeline of when these calls occur for Kimberly Compton. Like, oh, really? One source says that the second call happened two days after the body was found. One said it happens eight days after the body is found. So if what I've said is wrong, don't at me because I just had to like try and pick the timeline that made the most sense for the sake of telling the story. So it was that specific call that they say, not multiple calls. Yeah, so one says the first call happens almost at the same time as the body's being found. Another place says the first call happens 48 hours after the body's found. One place says the second call is at the bus depot is two days after the body's found, and then another says eight, and then another says five. It's just a bit all over the place. Another interesting fact that this could be, like, incorrect because I could only find this mentioned in one of the sources was that initially investigators think that they find their guy after a man called Alan Lopez confesses to the murder of Kimberly during negotiations with police while he's holding his family hostage. So Alan eventually ends up taking his own life, and for six months the Weepy Voice Killer calls stop. And so the police genuinely think that it They've was Alan that, that was that had murdered him. Wow. Um, however, they later find out that Lopez has a history of assault and mental illness. However, on the morning of August 6, 1982, another body is found by a paperboy along the banks of the Mississippi River. She's shortly later identified as 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simmons, which is another interesting thing about this guy. He didn't really have a specific MO when it came to... Victims. Like Ed Kemper mainly had victims that kind of resembled his mother or mm. were co-eds because his mother and, you know, other generally will attack, like, Son of Sam young had a, women or, yeah. 
Yeah, so he doesn't really have a specific MO. So Barbara had been at the Hexagon Bar where she meets a man and offers him a cigarette. He later offers her a ride home and Barbara tells the bartender that she's going home with this man. He's giving her a lift home. Mm -hmm. <coughs> when she's found, she's beaten and stabbed and the wounds are identified as circular, again leading investigators to think that it's either an ice pick or potentially a screwdriver. She's been stabbed over a hundred times. Jesus. Investigators also note that the way the scene has been like attempted to have been covered up, it's not this killer's first time. Two days later, they receive another phone call. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one ever in St. Paul. I killed more people. I'll never make it to heaven. Whoa. So this time, there's witnesses. Multiple people have spotted Barbara at the bar the night before with a man that they describe as approximately 40 years old, 6 foot tall, 185 pounds or 83 kilograms. He's white and he's got a receding hairline. Like, baby. Mm, real Get, sex idol. Yeah, sex god. But also mm. basically they've just described like the entire boomer population of the world. Yeah, they describe like every stockbroker. <laughs> every white man world. ever. Yeah. So police start to pour over mugshots of prior offenders of violent crimes. Now, I couldn't find anywhere in his history that Stefani had been charged with a violent crime. However, he's one of the mugshots that the police narrow down to a list of eight. So, ah. obviously, in his history somewhere that I couldn't find online, he's been charged with a prior right. violent offense he's at some stage. So, they show the bar staff who were at the bar the night of Barbara's disappearance, and they all identify Stefani. And this is where they start digging into his background and found that he worked at the Malberg Manufacturing, which is where the first victim, Karen, was found near, the first oh, assault victim. Oh, shit. Right. So police stake out his apartment, and on the day of August 21st, 1981, they follow him to Minneapolis after he leaves his apartment, but they lose his tail shortly after. So that day, Stefani heads to the red light district in that area and picks up 19-year-old sex worker Denise Williams. They go back to, back to his apartment... They have sex and then Stefani offers to drive her back to the city. And I guess from her perspective, she's thinking at this stage, he's already bought me here. We've had sex. He's paid me. He's not a, a psycho. I mm. guess you would assume that late in the game, you assume that. Yeah. Not, I mean, not a you've psycho. already gone through, you've spent so much time with him. Yeah. So, however, as they start driving, it becomes clear to her that he's not taking her where they're supposed to go as he's driving through like dark suburban areas and not back towards the city. Yeah. Denise looks around and notices an empty glass bottle on the floor of the car. So Stefani turns onto a dark dead end road. He stops the car and then from his glove box, he pulls out a screwdriver and violently starts stabbing Denise with the screwdriver. He stabs her 15 times before Denise is able to grab the glass bottle off the floor and smash it on his head. Shit. She causes like severe head wounds, which makes him stop stabbing her long enough for her to jump out of the car and run off screaming. She thankfully draws the attention of a man who comes to her rescue and calls an ambulance and Stefani flees the scene. Thank God for that guy. Yeah, right? So police come and start to search the area. However, at this stage, Stefani has gone back to his apartment. However, when he gets home, he realizes that he's actually really badly injured from the bottle wound ah. on his head. And he actually calls 911 for an ambulance, claiming <laughs> that he's been beaten up as part of a robbery. However, 
keep in mind, he's been killing women in this area. So obviously, the 911 dispatchers have been intensively prepared in case the weepy voice killer calls again. Yeah. So the dispatch operator notices that it's a very similar voice to what they've been listening to the recordings. Mm-hmm. And the injuries that this man is describing are similar to what Denise has been describing because yeah. she said she's hit him over the head with a bottle. So police are dispatched to Stefani's apartment and he is charged with second degree assault. Shortly after, with further investigation and positive witness IDs, he's also charged with the murder of Barbara Simmons. So during his trial, his ex-wife, his sister, and his former roommates all testify that the voice on the 911 recordings is definitely him. However, unfortunately, this on its own isn't enough to charge him with the other murder and assault because aside from the calls, there's not a shred of evidence to actually link him because obviously they had eyewitness um, statements from Barbara. People saw her, so it was pretty obvious that it was him. But Mm. with the original assault and Kimberly's death, there's no actual evidence aside from the calls to link him. And because of what you heard, because it's so garbled and he most you can understand 90% of what he says but then he starts to go into that yes it's not a credible um yeah source of the defense basically evidence. would have ripped destroyed them, it. ripped them yeah. apart if they tried to yeah. go to trial yeah however he is thankfully sentenced to 40 years in prison for barbara's murder and while in prison in 1997 He's diagnosed with skin cancer and told that he has less than a year to live. So basically, this is a death sentence without actually having been given capital punishment. So we're just going to briefly flash back to July 1982. Mm -hmm. 33-year-old school teacher Kathleen Greening is found dead in her bathtub by her friend. Case goes unsolved for 15 years and had actually been initially ruled as an accident of drowning. However, upon finding about, out about his cancer, Stefani decides to confess. Oh. He confesses that he drowned Kathleen in her bathtub. Police to this day don't know why he changed tact to drowning. They don't know why he didn't make a call to 911 for this Specific, specific murder. murder. And they also don't know the connection between Paul Stefani and Kathleen because they find his phone number written in her address book next to the name Paul S. Oh, shit. But they have no idea what the connection is. Right. But he knows things about the crime and things about the inside of the apartment that make it obvious he's not just talking shit and yeah. he actually did it. Stefani also then confesses to the murder of Kimberly and the attack of Karen. In his confession, he says, I wake up in the morning thinking and hoping I'm dreaming all of this. I don't know what to do except say I wish I could turn back the clock. Like, again, it's just so self-centered. Like, oh, I wish it was a dream. Like, well, you did it to yourself. Like, no, it doesn't. It still doesn't sound like he has any remorse. It's almost like he has remorse he got caught. Yeah. But he doesn't have remorse that he actually did. Because he was saying, I don't want to be locked up. I'd rather kill myself than be locked up. Yeah. So it's... But here's an interesting question. Do you think he willingly does this out of just human... um, Like him controlling his body out of like human will? Or if it's something mental in him that's sort of not right, 
that's I... making him do this and he knows it's not right to do, but it's... I mean, I really don't know enough about psychology to even begin to make a judgment call on that. Yeah. Because that's the interesting uh, thing. Just to cap off my story, yeah. so almost a nearly exactly a year after he confesses, Stefani dies in prison of cancer at aged 53. Mm. Oh. And that is the story of the weepy voiced killer. I think this one was actually a relatively short one for... Yeah, there was a... Um, uh, although we say this every single time and then we look at the timestamps and it's like, yeah, no, this was exactly the same length as uh, the other episode. I don't know, that just felt <clears throat> short. Like, normally I have a bit more back history of their... Yeah. ...story. That's, pre- that's fine because I think mine's got to be pretty long anyway. But, uh, yeah, I I find... I find his story particularly interesting purely because, yeah, as you said, we get letters mm. and you get anonymous calls to the cops and, like, all the Zodiac Killer and stuff. But this is just, like, next level. Yeah, and this, and we even get deathbed confessions. Um, but this was just... Yeah. But I, it is, it is good that... Because I guess for, for the family of Kimberly... And the and Karen and her family, yeah, they would have known that it was him, but to have the definitive the closure, closure, yeah, of him confessing would have yeah. been l- nice for Kimberly's family, especially. Yeah, it's just like putting it to rest, and the guy's dead. He's yeah, he served a somewhat of his sentence. Because I guarantee the prosecution would have been like, "Look, we know it's him." The calls are so obviously from the same person. Yeah. But if we take this to trial, because I guess for them, they had him pretty solidly on forty years for the murder of Barbara. They, I'm 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 not a law expert, so I don't know how it would have worked. But I guess if they'd tried to charge him with the other murders, he could have potentially yeah. got off with the other one as well. So he would have looked. They would have looked bad in the court if they used that as evidence, and then the defense could then rip them to shreds yeah, as you no, said so and then sure... that sways the jury and the judge it, it yeah. sways opinions and it makes the prosecutor look bad so and... i would i would wager guess that the prosecution's probably sat down with kimberly's family and gone look we know it's him yeah but we can't charge him and risk him getting yeah, off with exactly. anything we're pretty confident that we can put him away for life if we just go for this one yeah it affects yeah. the credibility of all their claims if one of their claims isn't as solid as the others. Yeah, exactly. But if it's stacked up on like solid, 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 and there's also this, but we're not too sure. Yeah. You know, but if you're trying to charge someone completely on unsolid evidence, that's going to damage everything else you've presented, essentially. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So it's very tricky situation. I'm, I'm certain they would have sat down with her and... With the family and said, this is the best we can probably do. If we stretch it too far, he might get nothing. He might, you know, yeah, turn us for around. Sure. <clears throat> I'm really excited to hear yours because this is a case that I know a little bit about because I've done a little bit of research and I've listened to other podcasts cover this crime. But it's another local Australian yeah. one for us. So Here's the thing. Don't step up and take our cases, all right? Australian podcast. Let the true blue dinkum die Aussies cover the Aussie cases. Listen here, you Baltimore motherfuckers. Like, it kills me. Like, as much as I love my favorite murder, like, they're one of my favorite podcasts. Whenever they do 
Australian cases, yeah. like yeah. hearing them butcher the names. I'm like, oh, stop. This one was Please funny because stop. I got some of my research from an American article mm. and the way they're describing some of the places like in um, in Melbourne, there's it's in... Um, they always call it Melbourne. Yeah, but it was in Lower Plenty. Mm. And then there's another one in um, Q, like K-E-W. Yeah. And they're like describing the places as like a relatively nice area. And this area is where all, most of the politicians, and you're like, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Like, but, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, listen, this is, yeah. this is our but bread I find when Americans say Melbourne, they always either Melbourne. pronounce it Melbourne or they draw out the R because, like, obviously American accents have that very hard R compared to us. Yeah. It's like Melbourne. <laughs> it's either Melbourne or Melbourne. Like, just, it's Melbourne. Yeah, and I like reading things where it makes sense to us, but to an American audience it doesn't. Yeah. They're like, like, for example, they're talking about, it was talking about, um, I think it was like kilometers or uh, kilos. Yeah, welcome to the and metric then, system, motherfuckers. And they're like, and for us people of the, on the state side of the border, like things, it's like, and you, like but just... It's so simple. You are the only ones. You yeah. are the only ones that still do it that way. Just come welcome Fuck to the twenty first century. I love you, America. Sorry. It was actually really funny. Like if Congrats any of the baby. if any of the guys from our little Twitter group that we have, because we've met some of the or I've because I run the Twitter, I've met some of the loveliest people on Twitter, and it's really funny because they're I think they're all either American or Canadian. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Australian one in our little Twitter family group we've got going on. Cute. And they just start talking about American things. And I'm like, hmm, yes. Uh, yes, putting the kettle on the stove. eagles and, yep, sounds good. Cool. Yeah, stars and stripes, baby. <laughs> Washington but, uh, was great. If anyone from our little Twitter group is, is listening, Hello. Yeah. Hi. Send us um, some American candy in a care package. We would very oh much God, appreciate someone, that. Someone just sent me M&M pretzels or pretzel yeah. M&Ms. Or mint M&Ms. We don't have them here. It makes me sad. All right. So I'm going to... Let's let's jump into let's, our let's second Let's jump topic. into it. So I am talking about the infamous Australian boogeyman, Mr. Cruel. So this one, if you're into a story that has closure and a happy ending you might find this a bit of a disappointment because the person involved never actually was is this our first like proper unsolved one we've done yeah i think so i think we had um golden state killer was recently solved like two years ago uh and that if that wasn't solved that would have been first unsolved i think so i think the the except for the Alyssa lamb one yeah, which is technically solved. Yeah. But, if you believe the... But it's stati- like uh, in terms of pen to paper solved, it's not. Mm. Do you know what? I love this couch, but the fact it doesn't have armrests, so I can't like... Because <laughs> once my part is done, I like to just put my feet relax. up and, and relax, but I can't really <laughs> do that. Maybe it's encouraging good work ethic. It's telling I believe me to so. Good posture. Up. Okay. On, right. Onwards and upwards. So, Mr. Krull was well known for a series of assaults against children he would commit in the late 80s and early 90s. 
His identity has never been discovered and he's escaped justice for since around the 1980s. Some believe a little bit before the first recorded victim, though nothing is concrete. So I'd like to preface this one just by saying if assault on a minor is something that is sensitive to you, then this might not be the yeah, episode for you. Maybe it's just a, listen to the first half of yeah, this episode. It's, it's, it's very intense and it, it even was something that I didn't want to cover at the first, but I thought it is important to bring it up because um, that's the kind of point of the show is to discuss things like this and I guess bring it to light and educate people who listen to us about what human beings can, are capable of. And, you know... Hopefully, mm. hopefully, as a people, we can progress. But um, with that aside, we're going to go to August 22nd, 1987, on the outskirts of Melbourne in Lower Plenty. So it's a 4 a.m. on a Saturday night, and this would be the first, the beginning of what is documented as the urban legend of Mr. Cruel. So like I said, there was suspected prior cases but this is the first like official one that they know for sure existed so a masked man removed the pain from a family's window in their living room and made his way inside completely unalerting everyone inside he made his way to the bedroom of the parents armed and armed himself with the knife and a gun he woke the two parents up and threatened to kill them if they moved or made any noises he pretended to be just a common thief that was just interested in their personal belongings and their money. So he would constantly tell them, I'm just here for your money. I'm just here for your money. So he commanded them to roll into their stomachs. Sorry, just quickly. Have we covered someone else who also did that? Yes. Yeah, so Golden State Killer, did he do that? This is very similar to the stuff that the Golden State Killer yeah, does. Yeah, okay, I thought so. Sorry, continue. And to also add to that, he is very skilled in eluding police officers. So he would throw a lot of red herrings and... Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm going to let you... I don't yeah, let let me finish it. Yeah. But um, So he tells the parents to roll over to their stomachs. He ties their hands and their feet together using a knot that's fairly typical for that of a sailor or someone who's around boats often. So the nautical knot, essentially. Mm. He orders them to the nearby wardrobe where he gags them with surgical tape and locks them inside, then proceeds to make his way through the rest of the house. In the adjacent bedroom, the family's six-year-old son was awoken by the intruder, but he's left relatively unharmed. He's just been blindfolded and gagged in the same way with the surgical tape, and then he's tied to his own bed in the same way his parents are. So then he makes his way to a nearby bedroom of the family's 11-year-old daughter. Over the next two hours, he would take several breaks in between sexually assaulting the the 11-year-old girl to wander around throughout the family's home, even stopping at one point to make himself a meal. After he leaves the house, he takes a box of classic records and a blue jacket stolen from the family with him. And this is the birth of the legend of the the Mr. Cruel Australian Boogeyman episode. It has now been established, essentially. And this story would haunt parents and children for decades afterwards, considering the man was never caught. So following this attack, 
uh, on the family. The police ov- obviously called in and they begin to investigate the crime. However, much like with your story, they're stumped from the get-go. Mm. So this attack seems to become unprovoked. The family has no enemies to look into or anyone of, of suspicion. The crime didn't fit with any of the open cases that they had in the area at the time. And this is in the late... This is in the late 1980s in Melbourne, and Melbourne at this time was considered one of the safest cities to live in in the, in the earth. Had the, one of the lowest crime rates within the state. Um, Australia itself being a relatively safe country. Uh, even before the like like 1980s, we had some a series of uh, of of bad events, but in terms of day by day consecutive statistics, it's one yeah, of the safest like, places to live yeah, in. Yeah. So there was even a, 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 an unofficial motto or a slogan that the citizens, was, citizens would describe at Melbourne as they would describe it as the most livable city in the world. Well, it, isn't it literally I think like, it literally lists? is. I think it literally is the most livable city <clears throat> yeah. in the world. So while violent crimes were still happening within, the, within Melbourne, it had the lowest rate of such amongst any m- many other places in the world. So b- police began to look into the assault and pick apart the pieces. So the parents had been bound, gagged, and locked inside their own wardrobe. The son had also been bound, gagged, and blindfolded the same way, but he'd been tied to his bed. The daughter had been physically assaulted over the span of a couple hours, in which the suspects searched the house and eventually made off with a random collection of records and mm. a jacket. So more details came when the investigators began to focus on the daughter. So she told the police that during one of the perpetrator's breaks, he had used the family phone to call someone. Oh. She said it was a threat to someone. Apparently the man had demanded the person on the other end of the phone to move their children or else they would be next. And he referred to this person as Bozo. Right. Okay. When police checked the family records on their phone, they were surprised to see there was no such call that had taken place at all. Mm. So, later on throughout this case, it would become clear this was the first of many red herrings that Mr. Krull would use to throw off investigators. Mm. Now, it would be over a year before the perpetrator would start struck again. December 27th, 1988, just days after Christmas, John Willis, his wife, and his four daughters are sleeping in their Ringwood area home just a few kilometers southeast of where the previous assault had been taking place. John was deep asleep when around 5.45 a.m., the sensation of an object striking his temple awoke him. So, I don't mean like as in struck him, it's poked into his temple. Right. Right. Okay. A voice speaks to him saying, don't be a hero. The masked intruder wearing a blue, wearing blue overalls and a blue ski mask is holding a gun to John's head and a knife in the other hand. So it's clear to John that if he retaliates in any way, he's jeopardizing the safety of him and his family. Yeah, of course. John and his wife are both ordered to roll over into their stomachs, much like the first crime, and they're bound by their wrists and ankles again with copper wire. And a similar type of knot was utilized as before, again, one primarily used by sailors. So they're blindfolded and gagged at the same surgical tape as before, 
and were then assured by the intruder that he is only there for money. Again, same as the last attack. The masked man stole roughly $35 from the family's bedside table and then he went throughout the house and physically cut all the home phone lines. So after assuring he had a head start due to this so that the family couldn't call the police as soon as he leaves, he makes his way to the bedroom that the family's four daughters shared. Addressing 10-year-old Sharon Willis by her name... Oh, that's... I didn't know that part. That's wakes creepy. up the groggy 10-year-old girl and proceeds to blindfold and gag her as he had her parents. He stops to pick up a few items of her clothing and then makes off with her in the early morning. It took roughly 15 minutes for the two parents to break free of their restraint, which fucking superhero parents. Well, you would be yeah, absolutely 100%. beside yourself. So when they finally got out, they were confronted with the crippling realization that their oldest daughter was now missing. Yeah. So with the phone lines cut out, John had to rush to his next door neighbor's house to use their phone and afterwards proceeded to search the entire neighborhood for his daughter. Uh, however, unfortunately, his search would come up with nothing. 10-year-old Sharon Willis was still at large. So for over 18 hours, the Willis family was stressing about the well-being of their 10-year-old daughter. It was just after midnight when a woman stumbled upon a small figure standing on a street corner, wrapped in wrapped around in green garbage bags. It was Sharon Willis, and she'd been left by her abductor. So despite the terrible trauma that had she had been she'd gone through, she was surprisingly in strong spirits, calm and collected. She told the woman, "My name is Sharon Willis." And I was taken from home early this morning. A man left me here and told me to go and ring home. The woman had, that found her called the police and got in touch with Willis's family. And soon they were all reunited. Now, pretty much almost as soon as this happens, an investigation begins into this kidnapping. Yeah. Sharon had been blindfolded throughout the entire kidnap. She wasn't able to give a physical description of the attacker, but rather she described his voice. So he was a soft smoke, soft-spoken, blunt individual and actually seemed to be somewhat caring and kind. Mm. So the description obviously seems odd to investigators given the, the previous crimes he just, he's just committed. Yeah. Especially the word that she used, she used to describe him as gentle. They mm. thought this was very weird given what had just happened. Mm -hmm. During her brief captivity, Sharon was apparently fed a Vegemite sandwich and given some milk and lemonade to drink. And shortly before being let go, the suspect had given her a thorough cleaning, not only washing off any possible forensic evidence he left behind, Mm -hmm. but clipping her fingernails, her toenails, brushing and flossing her teeth and more. Oh, that's just a bit... Very weird. Very yeah. Creepy. Very creepy. So the abductor either kept or discarded her clothes because they couldn't find them, not wanting any forensic evidence to obviously trace back to him. Yeah, of course. So then he dresses her up in an assortment of garbage bags before dumping her off at the grounds near Baywater High School, just a few miles away from her house. Mm. So I believe the high school plays into a interesting connection and theory later on that I'll describe and I'll go into. I think I know, I don't want to say it because I don't want to spoil it, but I think I know one of the theories that before, when we get to the end, before you go into it, I want to 
see how good my okay. memory is. No worries. Okay, so investigators are quick to piece the uh, incident together to the prior one that was in Lower Plenty, but they wouldn't make details of that public for quite some time, which is the first of many kind of blunders yeah. on their parts. No, I do remember like the police fucked The police this one up. fucked this one up. Not the investigators, but the general police force, the first responders, really mm. fucked up every single step of this case. So soon within Melbourne, just a, an environment of fear had been, had been forming. And soon they nicknamed this story of the, of the boogeyman to, to, they nicknamed him the Hampton Rapist. Okay. So in the weeks and the months of following the assault, the Willis family lived in a complete state of fear. So the entire family slept in their lounge room together, refusing to sleep in separate bedrooms. They installed a security system and were even given a gold retriever as a pet. Mm. And you can just imagine, even to this day, like, they'd still be going through this. I wonder, so the, she was 10 when it happened? Was yeah, that... in the 80s. Yeah, 88. so... Yeah, so she'd be in her 50s now. Correct? Tw- yeah, she'd be in her 50s. She was 10 in the 80s. Yes. Um, But you'd still remember that. Yeah, of course. Which well, is... just the whole family to go through that. No, but I mean, she wasn't like young enough that it would be something that you might no, forget. No, Like 10, for sure. I can remember things from when I was 10 yeah. quite clearly. So particularly John Willis, the father, took this assault very difficulty, difficultly. He began to wonder things like if he could, if he could do it, had it done anything different, he could have maybe changed the course of the assault, saved his daughter. Obviously, he has no way of knowing and simply just had to hedge his bets on the police eventually finding his daughter's abductor. Though, unfortunately, as we all know, this wasn't the case. So very little evidence is left behind or ever found in general in in the crime scene and further crime scenes to come. Certainly none of it could be linked to one specific person. However, one piece of evidence emerges later in interviews in which Sharon told of hearing a low-flying aircraft during her short captivity. Mm. This would come into play an interesting connection later on. The area of Canterbury, Victoria. Good old Canterbury, Victoria. The Linus family were a relatively well-off English-born, English-native family. Yeah. So they had been renting a house in uh, alongside along the um, along houses that had a lot of uh, Australian politicians and public officials living in it in uh, Monomath Monomath Avenue, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a relatively wealthy street and area. So they had moved to Australia for business purposes and the family was actually preparing to move back to England in the very near future. In fact, they had moved to this Melbourne area this specifically to raise their children in safety and were planning on making their move back home just a few days later. So July 3rd, 1999, the Linus family, uh, the, sorry, the parents, Brian and Rosemary, were at a farewell party that was being thrown for them. Oh. So, they had left their two daughters alone at home for just a few hours. 
Shortly before midnight, 15-year-old Fiona and 13-year-old Nicola were awoken by an angry commanding bark by a masked intruder. He orders Nicola into another room and to collect her school uniform from the Presbyterian Ladies' College she attended. While he began to tie up Fiona in the very next bed, that in the very bed that she had been sleeping in. So again, he's armed with a knife and a gun, and he has he once he bounds the oldest of the two up, he takes he's able to take uh, the younger, um, the, the younger one, Nicola, away with her. But before he leaves, he informs Fiona that her father Brian would have to pay twenty five thousand dollars for the safe return of Nicola. And then he takes her and escapes in the family's own rental car, which had been parked in the driveway. Mm. So together they drove for about a kilometer and then they proceeded to park the family's rental car and uh, presumably they transferred to another car that the abductor had prepared. So it was just 20 minutes after the abduction that Brian and Rosemary Linus would turn home, finding their driveway empty and their front door open soon to find their 15-year-old daughter Fiona bound to her own bed with a ransom message that she would then give to them. The police, again, find almost no evidence from the crime scene itself. The intruder's kidnapping of Nicola could have been, seemed to have been done quick and efficient. So they realized the tough spot they were now in, uh, most missing cases going cold just after, hours after the initial abduction, obviously. So they're in a very tough position so unlike the abduction of Sharon Willis Nicola wasn't returned later that day but or even the next day roughly 36 hours after the abduction her father Brian holds a press conference in which he pleads for the abductor to give her daughter give his daughter back and his willingness to comply with the ransom demands however the Hampton rapist as he's now known as didn't leave any means of which he could collect behind just the ransom demands. Mm. So the investigation began to look into business dealings with Brian's. They thought maybe this could be related to his work somehow. Um, they, the police at the time believed the ransom must have been impersonal in nature. Yeah. So fortunately for poor Nicola and her family, she's found alive approximately 50 hours after being abducted on her 14th birthday. God. Found outside an electricity station, electricity station in Kew, just a short distance away from her home, Nicola had been left by her abductor. So she was fully dressed and wrapped in a blanket. Her abductor had let her let left her outside the utility station and told her to sit in a prone position until he could drive away. After which she leaves the area. Uh, and takes off her blindfold, leaves the area, and makes her way to a nearby house. So it was shortly after two o'clock in the morning, but she had immediately phoned her father, who had been awake, praying for a safe return ever since uh, returning to a desi- to the empty home in July third. Yeah, you wouldn't, you would not <clears throat> be able to sleep. No. So Nicola was actually able to provide investigators with some important details. The most uh, prominent of them was being he, a rough estimation of his height, which was roughly 175 centimeters or five foot eight, mm-hmm. um, and his weight. And she actually guessed this by judging her own height next to the attacker when he was rushing her from the bedroom to get to the getaway car. 
he said that he barely stood taller than herself. Okay. And she revealed that he also had reddish brown hair. He was all, she was also able to give detectives a very vital de- um, details they haven't heard of yet, a description of the abductor's house and vehicle. So while the sketches she gave to police were rather mundane and plain, they were something. still important. They were something. Exactly. And especially once, uh, once word of how she got out of them came out. So apparently Nicola had been blindfolded for the most of her captivity and she actually been given a few chances to get a glimpse and taken it. So he told her, my freedom is worth more than your life, which still echoes the threats given to Sharon Willis. And just like Sharon Willis, the previous victim, Nicola had been bathed and clean- cleaned before her release. Oh, it just makes my it just makes my skin crawl. Just Yeah. Ugh. So throughout her captivity, she had also been forced into a neck brace that was fastened to the abductor's bed. Jesus. Yeah. It was reported that apparently the perpetrator talked aloud to another person while Nicola was blindfolded in the bedroom. However, no response was ever heard. Investigators weren't Sure, if this was another red herring, red herring. Mm. or they actually had an accomplice with them at the time. But okay. it's most likely it was just a red herring. Yeah. Similar to the previous. So she also told investigators that months after the Linus family completed their move back to their home, back to England, that she remembered hearing the same type of low-flying craft that had been previously reported by Sharon. Yeah, okay. So investigators start to piece these things together and they eventually come to the conclusion that they might, he must be living in the vicinity around the Tullamarine Airport. Well, Or I at mean, the very least, underneath its flight path. Is that really, like, that much of a stretch to assume that if two girls can hear low-flying aircrafts, then, oh my goodness, he might be near an airport. <laughs> Like no shit, Sherlock. But it's it's not it. What they what I mean is they are able to piece that he's taken them to the to the same location. Yeah. Okay. So he's not taking them to a different location each time. He's taken both of them to the same area. I'm just not very willing to give the police any sort of props on this case because they just well, this is the investigators. Fuck it up. The investigators did as much as they could, yeah. but they were they were fucked over by the police yeah. themselves. These are different, right. different okay. people. Okay, keep going. <clears throat> okay, so now the investigators had a rough height of the suspect, as well as detailed sketches of the house, the interior of his car, and a good idea of where he might have lived. However, the worst of his crimes was yet to come. John and Phyllis Chan were two incredibly hardworking parents that worked approximately 18 hours a day to ensure the best life possible for their three daughters. So they were both... so sad because I know what's happening. They were both immigrants to Australia. Two parents owned three restaurants in the Eltham area of Victoria, as well as a handful of other property investments. Now, the two parents, because they were so busy managing three restaurants, obviously, they often weren't home or didn't return home until midnight or so. So they would often leave their three daughters home alone with the oldest of the three, Carmine, who was 13, to watch over the other two. 
Now, the thing is, Mr. Cruel must have known this, as detectives believe he would often stake out his victims weeks or months ahead of time learning their habits. April 13th, 1991. The family, even though they resided in a fairly comfortable uh, district of Victoria, in a house that most people would classify as a mansion, they still weren't immune to the attack by Mr. Cruel. So it was on a Sunday. It was a very busy day for the parents. And Carmen and the two younger sisters had been left to their typical Saturday night, which meant the three of them would watch movies and TV in Carmen's room. At roughly 8.40 in the evening, Carmen and one of her sisters start goes to the kitchen to make something to eat where they're confronted by Mr. Cruel. He's wearing his traditional balaclava with a green-gray tracksuit holding and, and holding a knife. He tells him, I only want your money. Again, echoing the previous attacks. Mm. <clears throat> he claims he only wants Carmine to show him where the money is. And he braced a bed in front of the closet. Uh, sorry, he locks he, the two younger sisters inside the closet and puts a braces a bed in front of the closet to lock them inside. <clears throat> so, after telling Carmine that he's only looking for the money, he actually takes off with Carmine, leaving the two younger sisters locked inside the, ba- the, the closet. Mm-hmm. Within minutes, the two younger sisters had broken free from the closet and immediately called their father, who's at the family restaurant. By the time police arrived, they already knew what had happened. Yeah, so they the they, they can connect it. Yeah, the large. But here's the thing: <clears throat> the large house had no sign of children within, no yard toys, no playground equipment of anything of the sort. The attack had been planned, and that was evident from what was written on his Toyota Camry, the Phyllis Chan's um, car. The words "pay back Asian drug dealer more, more to come" were written on. The family's the car, Toyota yeah. Camry. So they trace his entrance from the cut window screen, where people, where police were actually able to track his steps throughout the house, including his getaway from the sliding glass door in the kitchen. And aided by uh, sniff tracking dogs, he, they're able actually to trace um, his steps through the family's garden and tennis court up to nearly three hundred meters away to a vacant lot. lot where he must have made his getaway with Carmine at a waiting car. So, hoping to get their daughter return, return home safely to them, John and Phyllis, much like the previous parents, hold a press conference roughly 72 hours later. In the press conference, conference sorry, Phyllis Chan can be seen sobbing, holding up an outfit that Carmine had been wearing the night that she was taken and pleading for her daughter's safe return. Days later... The Chan family posted an encrypted letter to the local newspaper using a cipher that Carmine would have been able to decipher. They offered ransom in exchange for the return of her daughter, and even Carmine's sisters penned letters to the published media, begging for their older sister to be returned home to them so that they could help, so she could help them with their homework. So, what differentiates differentiates this attack from the other two is that. Not days, not weeks, just months would pass with no word from Carmine's safe return. Yeah. 
Um, so police, the first police responders, as we stated before, completely marred the whole investigation from the very start. They spoiled any potential evidence and by failing to establish the Chan house as a crime scene. So uh, at some point, there were dozens of police officers walking around the house looking for leads before investigators could be even begin to look for clues of their own, completely trampling over any evidence that could have been left. Mm. So even though the police spent the next few months running a fine-tooth comb through John Chan's personal and professional life, looking for maybe possibilities to criminal ties or um, personal connections, they soon swing their focus back onto Mr. Krull, the now infamous boogeyman. So the riding on Chan's vehicle was nothing more than a red herring, again, the third mm. of which, meant solely to mislead investigators. In what is now one of the largest manhunts in Australian history, they refer to it as Operation Spectrum. It was a multi-million dollar undertaking that consumed tens of thousands of man hours, along with many, many more volunteer hours. They were offering a $300,000 reward for any information leading to the capture of Mr. Krull and the safe return of Carmine Chan. However, there would unfortunately be no closure or happy ending to Mm. the Chan family. Nearly a year to the day of Carmine's abduction on April 9th, 1992, a man was walking his dog in a nearby area of Thomastown along Edgar's Creek when he and his dog stumbled upon a weird object. When he bent down to inspect it, he was horrified to find what he found. Returning home to alert authorities, the police soon discovered that what the man had found, it was a fully decomposed skeleton, which would then be revealed to be Carmine Chan. A full autopsy would reveal that Carmine had been shot three times in the head, execution style, and based on the decomposition of his skeleton, she had likely been dead for close to a year. Phyllis, Carmine's mother, insists that Carmine was a very stubborn girl who would have fought against victimization and likely must have learnt her her abductor's identity. It's possible she learnt who her kidnapper was and eventually that's what Mm, they think led to her death. John Cham was ultimately cleared of any possible wrongdoing and revealed to be nothing more than an upstanding member of society, obviously. Operation Spectrum was now publicly connected to Carmine's murder uh sorry now had publicly connected carmine chan's murder to the three previous sexual assault slash kidnappings and they lay blame at the feet of the true culprit still had unidentified mr cruel so operation spectrum would continue to last for the next few years costing around four million dollars the 40 member task force would go on to investigate over twenty seven thousand suspects receive over 10,000 tips from the public and search 30,000 houses in the hopes of identifying a single clue. While Mr. Krull was never identified by the task force, it went on to arrest over 70 people involved in child pornography. Well, that's something, I guess. Yeah. They believe this whole criminal underground might have been connected to Mr. Krull in some way. So, like you said, it was fucking something. But, uh... Both of his freed abductees 
claim that claim to have heard or seen clues that might have led to a camera at the foot of the bed they've been chained to. Oh. Uh, and it was an easy step to believe that Mr. Coyle was involved in some form of child pornography trade. It's just, it's yeah. so awful. It is. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's so awful. It's enough to just make you never want to have kids. It is. It really is. Something like that happened to your child. You just don't want it to have happen to fucking anyone. Well, though, any yeah, kid. but and the horrible thing about the Chen case is they probably would have been. I imagine that they would have almost been assured by police. You know, he's he's done this before, and we'll they've catch all him. been. But the girls have all been let go. Yeah, yeah. They probably would have been, you know, There's okay, no... this is this is awful and what may be happening to our daughter is awful. Yeah, but, at least but the prior cases can, that were released. At least we can put some hope mm-hmm. in that she will come back to us. Yeah, but a year goes by and nothing. Yeah. A year's a long time to be looking for your daughter. For every day, just nothing. Be like maybe today's the day that yep. we find something. And but nothing That's comes so up awful. until they find her body. Okay, so is this where you're getting into the theories? No, uh, not quite yet. Okay. So, despite of despite of all that Operation Spectrum accomplished, the Victorian police force was marred with claims of corruption in the early 90s, which would not only go on to affect the later investigations of Mr. Cruel, but also bring up many claims of cover-up. So, new operations, Operation Spectrum was eventually... Sorry, uh, the, um, opera, uh, this operation would then be shelved, uh, and any potential leads with Mr. Cruel along with it in 1994. So, over the years, theories would linger around the identity of Mr. Cruel and his eventual fate. Now, no future crimes would be attributed to him, but investigators have possibly tagged prior crimes to Mr. Cruel. Now, what would you want to say? Is this the one where, for a little while, they suspected that him and the Golden State Killer were potentially the same person? Or am I thinking of... No, because they're in two different completely countries. No, 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 I know. But I, I, I'm I, sure I've read somewhere that it was around the time the Golden State Killer stopped that Mr. Cruel started. And at one point there was a theory that it was the same person. Uh, No, that's not the oh, theories okay. that I have. That wouldn't make any sense though because he was caught again in America and he has no connection to Australia. Yeah, well, he's caught now. But, but this, when this man I first also had an Australian accent. I don't know. I just, I'm sure I remember hearing. I could be wrong. It could be a different case. Yeah. All right. So, over the years, theories would linger about who Mr. Cruel was. So, because no future crimes could then, could be attributed to the same style of him, they don't know if he's still continuing to the day. So, they believe that the abduction and the murder of Carmen Chan was his last offence in the Victorian era, area, sorry. but there are potentially up to a dozen assaults on children in the mid-1980s that have remained unsolved that they could potentially link him to. Mm. So, prior to his first case as Mr. Cruel. Yeah. So, almost all of them share a couple of details with the Mr. Cruel abductions. 
It's possible that Mr. Krull is far more notorious of a, of a criminal than publicly known. But the thing is, police have refused to release details on these prior assaults or Mr. Krull's alleged ties to them. Right. So there's no way for people like us to piece them together. Because yeah. they refuse to this day to even give out any details to yeah. it. So this is an interesting theory that I read. All four of the assaults and abductions happened during school breaks. Mm-hmm. They think that Mr. Krull was somehow tied to the Victoria school system. That that would make sense. All four assaults happen and uh, abductions, sorry, happened during the school breaks. So this also goes into conjecture with the knowledge that Nicola Nicole, Nicola Linz and Carmine Chan attended the, the same, same school, school. Presbyterian yeah. Ladies College. And Mr. Krull requests that Nicola bring her school uniform with her when he abducts her. Can I just quickly yeah. just add something that I just looked up because I wanted to okay. make sure I wasn't going insane, yep. which I'm not. The reason that they thought, they obviously know now it wasn't because they have evidence on the Golden State Killer. But there was a time when they thought it was Joseph D'Angelo because there was a time where D'Angelo lived in Australia in 1967 while serving in the USSS USS. Canberra during a tour of duty in North Vietnam. So he lived in Australia for a little while, which is why right. I okay. remembered... I'm not going crazy. Okay, okay, sorry. I just had to... thought I was going insane. So like I was saying, Nicola Linus and Carmine Chan attended the same school. And Mr. Krull requested that Nicola bring her school uniform with her when he abducts her. This would bring into question ties to Sharon Willis, since he addressed Sharon by her full name the night she was abducted. Oh, yeah. Further interviews with the two living abductees revealed that he liked to refer to them as Missy, and he often lived in a fantasy world where he thought the two were married. Oh, that's so creepy. In 2010, over 20 years after the original abductions and assaults, a new investigation was launched into the finding of details and in in, uh, an attempt to try and identify the uh, the, the suspect. So this was formed as Task Force Apollo, hoping that newer technology and investigative methods would bring out an answer to prior detectives that to that prior detectives couldn't find. Though unfortunately, many of the case files were misfiled, unorganized, or just straight up missing. Great. Another great fucking blunder. Right. In fact, one of the vital pieces of evidence that could have led to Mr. Krull's doorstep was a piece of tape used to bind one of the victims. Completely missing. No idea where it is. Excellent. The thing is, police could have potentially used that piece of tape to recover DNA and then used genealogy technology to piece together a connection, like how they did with the Golden State Killer. So the missing piece of evidence paired with Mr. Krull's tactical abilities, with his knowledge of forensic evidence, there's another theory that he might have been involved with law Police enforcement. Police officer, yeah. <clears throat> so it's possible he would know what investigators would be looking for, which is why he did his best to cleanse the victims of any DNA, remove any vital evidence afterwards. We can only guess if it was, you know, a corrupt system or just... Incompetency. In, inability to do to to really mm. to do say everything together, but people believe that the corruption could be a reason why essential parts of the cases went missing. Mm. Though it could be either way, because the police force, especially at this time, 
They're fucking blunders. Yeah, that's very true. In Australia. Shit like this rarely happens. So when it kind of does... Yeah. It's a mi- it's a mixture between like you either get cops that are just have no fucking clue what to do or you have cops that are just ready to go. <clears throat> so here's the thing. We can only guess what happened, theories whatever. There's one suspect that was detained in 2013 that they think could possibly have been Mr. Cruel. Robert Keith Knight was a man who made a living as a youth worker and a school volunteer. Oh, it's him. And he had been arre- he had been arrested on two separate occasions for a variety of crimes against children. In 1980 and 1996, both times he had been arrested and convicted for sexual assault on minors, and a multitude of other victims had come out of the of saying uh, following his his convictions. It's him. <clears throat> According to the original. Operation Spectrum investigators, Robert Keith Knight was one of the suspects that never quite panned out, but they wanted to keep a firm eye on him and they never wanted to eliminate him from the contention. So he remained a person of interest throughout the entire investigations and all investigations to come. And at the time of Mr. Cool Assaults, they would coincide with his post-1980 conviction release. Mm. So after being released from prison for his 1996 conviction in 2009, Knight began to amass thousands of child pornography images that would, he would later be detained by in an investigation by Victorian police. He pleads guilty to the overwhelming evidence, obviously, and while awaiting trial, he leaps from his second-story prison railing to his death by suicide. Oh. Okay. Again, he's one of many suspects that the police still have to this day, and they still refuse to make any information public. Mm. So, you know, this could very well be the guy. Yeah. Sounds like it. We can't confirm it. And I believe, was this the case where the police also just poured through thousands upon thousands upon thousands of child pornography images and videos to try and see if they could find the girls after no. they said they noticed a camera? No, this wasn't that. Okay. They thought there was a connection. Yeah. At least there's nothing um, public about that. Yeah. But I, there is a story that I know you're referencing. I think it's a different story, though. Um, so more recently, there's another theory that People believe that Mr. Cool himself might have resurfaced and been involved in the 2011 abduction of 13-year-old schoolgirl Bung Siraboon, uh, as that case still remains unsolved mm. with no real end yeah. in sight. So, uh, at, at this, at, right now, at this point, Mr. Cool, his case is still open and he remains as one of Australia's most wanted criminals. Yeah, and I... I... <laughs> It's so sad because you, it's probably one of those ones that will stay unsolved purely because the police... Just don't want to disclose anything. Well, not even that, but they did such a bungled job of... Well, here's the thing. They could link it to that man, that the knight that was arrested, Keith Knight, mm. who committed suicide. There's something there that could definitely connect him or prove his innocence of those crimes yeah he has he has the motive he's a child rapist child pornographer well and a rape and assault sexual assaulter 
in with regards to the yeah. children, and he's been arrested for those priors. So he ha- and he's also a youth and a part-time school worker. Mm. So he has that. Yeah, there's that there's that theory that the Mr. Cruel was a school worker. Yeah. So it fits that whole theory. That whole story is just so terrible. It's so sad and like you look up the photos online and so Carmine is just this <clears throat> like she's just this gorgeous little she looks so happy like they have her school photo on Google when you look up Mr. Yeah. Cruel and she just looks <clears throat> like She's so little and she's like a little baby and she's just so beautiful and happy and it's just so, it's so sad. There's some, we've talked about it before, but there's something just so inhuman and yeah. and, and undignant, like shooting someone in the head, but three bullets to the head, point blank execu- execution style. It takes a certain human being to do that, mm-hmm. detached from to reality, do that to a child, to a child. Oh. yeah, a, these a stories are girl. these stories are a real downer. Yeah, a real bummer. It's not really. I don't really know how to come back from that to end this show. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know if there really is. That was just like usually we have these stories and we're like, and the guy was caught. Yeah, but it's because it's just it's unsolved. Yeah, yeah. It's just no... Due to either incompetence or corruption. No, or, even like remote happy ending. No. Um, Which if you have uh, any theories or information I, I left out that you know of in this case, bring, comment on our Twitter or our Instagram yeah. or anything because um, we would love to discuss this because... Uh, I know. actually <clears throat> had um, someone on Twitter listen to our Azaria Chamberlain episode and... Um, like added some little bits about her. Oh, great! Like her case, which yep. was like very interesting. Um, but I did want to give a quick shout out to. Um, I was saying before how we have a little Twitter group. Yeah. One of the guys in the group did a little shout out on his show for our show oh cool so i wanted to return the favor if you're listening to our show and you don't already i'm gonna leave his show link in our show notes but his show's called what cast and it's a podcast that touches on many interesting topics for example the paranormal ufos aliens conspiracy theories mythical beasts uh cryptozoology secret societies and many more he also has special guests. He covers current events and just general rants about things that he hates, which I can relate to because yeah. I love to rant about things that I hate. It's a fucking sick show. So that show is called What Cast. I'm going to leave the link in our show notes. Check it out. All the coolest were, things. The show is lovely enough to give show. us a little shout out. So just returning the favor. Yeah. We're just one big, happy, friendly community on Twitter. I love it. Yeah, and it's great watching because watching each other thrive and grow. We were saying a little while ago that like the podcast community seems like one that isn't really much of a community. Yeah, but it, it well the true crime little niche is anyway. Like there are like within circles there's like friendship circles and you the friend it's has a podcast. And wholesome. But like yeah, it's great because it's it was something that we 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 didn't really that wasn't really out there. And I feel like and I like it. You know, now it's a thing. this little community. Yeah. It's very nice. It's really nice going on Twitter and seeing all this positivity. Mm. Um, I don't think I really have anything else to 
Uh, last week, Siobhan and I recorded the first episode for our new show, which should be coming probably the, the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's called Little Show of Horrors. It's a horror movie review podcast, which I'll be updating you in the next couple of weeks, I'd say. We want to have a couple of episodes recorded and under our belt before we yeah. go. I, I think it's better to go live with a couple of episodes so it's not like yeah. someone listens to one episode. They're like, oh, that was great, but now what? All the OGs reckon that's the way to go. Three episodes at least, they say. You yeah. should go live with three. Yeah. So, Which makes sense. If you're looking into a podcast, you kind of want somewhere that has... Because you're not looking for, like, it's not a song. It's not like you're listening to the first one and it's like, you want content. Yeah, you for want sure. A, you want something that has consistent content. Yeah. Keep me hooked. Yeah. That's what I want. So yeah, I'll keep you guys posted on that. That should be coming soon. And I think that's it for me. That's the show, folks. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, I would like to say one thing. Oh God, what? I love you. Aw, that's a bit cute. Thanks. I love spending time with you. <laughs> <laughs> you bitch. All right, redacted. how did we go? How do we go, Mum, with the swearing? Yeah, I think we was... did pretty well. Yeah. And I don't say. think I said um once in my story. I'm probably going to listen did. back to it. It's like every second one is um. Yeah. But um. But um. But, um <laughs> Yes. We should have a um and a f- and a fuck counter. See many times. I don't have time to that. edit that in though. We are busy people. If one of our generous listeners wants to do that for us. Yeah, take a shot us. every time we say fuck. Or yeah, Bo- uh, uh, best sev cold drinking, drinking game. game. Whenever we Laura says um, and whenever I say fuck, or whenever Thomas says um, we both say um and fuck. I've a been lot. I've been doing pretty well, I think. I, you said it a couple of times. Yeah, but I kind of catch myself. I go, yeah. I go, uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> but it's and, but yeah, it's not I don't like really it, have else to... it's not so much like saying it in general. It's just like this the the succession of it, like them, um, and then so um there um and um you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. really fucking annoying to listen to. It is. It definitely is. And I'm um, sorry for our previous, oh, well, our first few episodes where that yeah. was kind of a thing. Yeah. Anyway, that is it from us. Yeah, we're fucking <coughs> experts now. Enjoy. We're... I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you have a great weekend and a great week. Yeah. Uh, we took a little... We switched distributors this week, so we didn't have a mini so that came out this week that just went past, but we will have one coming out mm-hmm. next week. So new episodes, Friday, mini sods Wednesday. Catch us at the bsc podcast on all social media platforms chuck us a review give us five stars make my day send us 50 bucks on the sly whatever floats your boat champ well we are gonna we are gonna start a twitch we're gonna give that a go we just need to get it set up so hopefully starting soon you will actually be able to watch these shows live on Twitch on Thursday nights yeah. as we record them. You'll if get to see me thing. completely stark naked when I record I'm gonna these. I'm going to have to not wear my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to wear clothes. Oh, he's wearing clothes. I'm not. I'm completely buck naked. I feel like this is the only way to record a podcast. Oh, he's not naked. I am. I'm exposed you... to the okay. elements. All right, whatever. 
anyway, have a great week and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.